is historian explaining a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong these lectures can be found on soundcloud itunes and stitcher uh, if you like them and want to hear more please take a look at my patreon page also under historian explaining and see what you might be able to contribute and if you have topics or questions you want me to get to please email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com or comment on SoundCloud. So this lecture is about knowledge and ignorance in the Middle Ages, which is a very important subject because, uh, as I said in the first lecture, people often think of the Middle Ages as a time of ignorance, barbarism, loss of knowledge, and that traditional perception is summed up in the familiar phrase, the Dark Ages. And again, as I said, uh, that term uh, isn't really used by scholars anymore, certainly not to refer to the whole Middle Ages, although sometimes it is still used in reference just to the early Middle Ages. The question of knowledge and lack or loss of knowledge in the Middle Ages is very important because it has this customary image as a time of superstition, ignorance, darkness. Uh, and yet, uh, and it is true that it was a time when all sorts of knowledge, learning, uh, literature, uh, technology was lost. That is certainly true. Uh, on balance, a great many uh, important texts and techniques fell victim to the destruction of time. Yet, at the same time, the Middle Ages were a time of great intellectual flourishing, creativity, the creation of new ideas, new schools of thought, and literally new schools in the forms of universities. And it was a time that celebrated knowledge and erudition, and that really in many ways was more intellectually productive and rigorous than our own time. So there's really a paradox built in here into the Middle Ages and how we understand them now. So how could both of these things be true? Well, the Middle Ages began out of the aftermath of the dissolution of the Roman Empire, when long-distance trade and communication was breaking down, uh, society was becoming more fragmented and localized, and uh, cities were shrinking or disappearing altogether, and more of the population had to focus simply, simply on survival and subsistence. So it's not surprising that in this era, uh, literacy was very low. Only a small portion of the population, all the way through the Middle Ages, really, only a small fraction of the population was literate, probably at most 3 or 4%. And most of those who were literate were in the clergy. Before the printing press, uh, only a, a tiny portion of people had any need to be literate. Most people were illiterate because 
there was extremely little chance that they were ever going to get their hands on a written book or even a written document. And so there wasn't much point in uh, being literate. This also was a time, particularly, again, the early Middle Ages, between about 500 and 1,000 or so, this was a time when a tremendous amount of ancient and classical knowledge disappeared. You may have heard before the great classical authors that we still know today uh, produced tremendous uh, bodies of work that were preserved in libraries all around the Mediterranean world, including the Library of Alexandria and others, and only a tiny portion of their works are still available to us today. The great lyric poet Sappho wrote nine volumes of poetry, around 10,000 lines. We only have about 650 of those lines today. The great playwright Sophocles, the author of Oedipus Rex, we know wrote 120 plays. We only have seven of them. Uh, and other great playwrights like Euripides had bodies of work that are still being rediscovered episodically in tiny fragments. Uh, an entirely unknown play by Euripides, which was lost for thousands of years. Uh, a few years ago, a small portion of the end of that play was found because archaeologists were able to unwrap the papyrus that had been wrapped around an Egyptian mummy and were able to find some of the writing of that play by Euripides on the papyrus. So this is the sort of work that we have to do today in hopes of recovering tiny fractions, tiny fragments of what was left over from the ancient world. And a great deal of this work was lost in the early Middle Ages. Now, the vast majority of this work was not lost because the medievals had some sort of antipathy to knowledge. And as I said before, the notion that the church tried to suppress knowledge is completely upside down. Uh, the church was the only institution that had the wherewithal to try to preserve some of this ancient uh, knowledge from the ancient Middle East or Greece or Rome. And they devoted a tremendous, perhaps excessive, number of man hours and resources into uh, trying to preserve ancient libraries. But this was extremely labor-intensive, time-consuming work, and it was a truly uh, uphill battle. If your only technology for recording information in large quantities is on papyrus or on parchment, which was slightly more durable than, than papyrus, then it's going to be extremely vulnerable. Uh, it's flammable, it can burn down in fires, it can be destroyed in floods, it can be destroyed in robberies and ransackings, and even if it isn't destroyed in any of these ways, sometimes you have to use whatever limited resources you have on hand, and so books and documents were cannibalized, erased, reused. I say excessive because producing a single book in the Middle Ages was a tremendous undertaking. Not only did you need literate, uh, skilled 
copyists and scribes who could understand and copy over the texts that they had before them. Even more so, you needed appropriate materials. The main good material that Europeans had access to was uh, parchment, which generally had to be made from animal skins. And the most available skin that was uh, usable for making into parchment was calf skins. In order to copy over a single Bible, one copy of the Bible, the parchment necessary would require killing 300 calves. So think about this. You would have to slaughter tremendous numbers of animals that you probably need for food or for labor and devoting all of those resources into copying over just a single book. So a great deal of the wealth of early medieval Western civilization was actually poured into trying to uh, reproduce and preserve these bodies of knowledge. But not surprisingly, over the centuries, most of it still was lost anyway. Now, as for that which survived, the medievals tended to focus in on the particular authors and particular texts that they prioritized, that they thought were philosophically interesting or persuasive, and also there was surely some bias in what was copied over and what was eventually left to the wayside. And texts that dealt with taboo subjects like uh, forbidden uh sexual practices that had become taboo with the rise of Christianity, uh, pagan religious beliefs, these sorts of things probably were deprioritized and so were more likely to be lost over time. But uh, nonetheless, even a great deal of those were kept intact in one monastery or cathedral school or another somewhere in Europe. Uh, so the monasteries and convents did do their level best to keep these inherited uh, bodies of knowledge going, but nonetheless a great deal uh, was lost. The particular philosopher whose work had the greatest prestige in the early medieval world, before about the year uh, 1100 or so, was Plato. So the the medieval church did believe that pagan philosophies could have real value uh, and could be useful or enlightening, but they particularly preferred those that they saw as in some way being concordant with Christianity and Christian teachings. So uh, Plato sort of got pride of place, and certain dialogues by Plato about metaphysics and cosmology like the Timaeus were widely copied and preserved in, in early medieval Europe. And uh, Plato, uh, you may know, was a, a thoroughly dualist philosopher. He saw the world as existing on two distinct planes. There was the visible material world that one encountered every day of, of objects, tables, chairs, bodies, air. Uh, and then there was the plane of concepts, uh, the world of forms, as he called them, uh, the, the pure ideas of things. And he believed that the world of forms was eternal, uh, unchanging, uh, 
it was graspable only by the mind, and that it was more real. It was a higher reality than the tangible or visible world. And this uh, view of things he summed up famously in the allegory of the cave in the Republic, where he posits the idea that the entire world that we see around us is like the interior of a cave. And if you imagine people uh, sort of chained in place in a cave, and behind them is a fire, and in front of them is a wall of the cave where they see the light, the flickering light from the fire, and they see shadows of things passing uh, in front of them. And because all they can see is the wall with the firelight and the shadows, they think the shadows are real. They think the shadows are are real things themselves. They don't realize that they're just projections of something else that they can't see. And in the allegory, eventually one of these people manages to get out of the cave and is able to see the sunlit world outside and is able to see things themselves, plants, trees, animals. They realize that the shadows that they were seeing on the wall of the cave were not reality. They were just images. So this is uh, the famous metaphor Plato uses to to separate uh, and to, to describe what he thinks of as the real experience of most human beings, that most of us are stuck uh, only seeing images or shadows and not seeing the real things themselves, uh, which are... Uh, which, which are only accessible to the mind or, or the spirit. So uh, this sort of way of viewing the world that you see in Plato was amenable to many Christians in the early centuries of the church during the, the Roman Empire and the early Middle Ages. And uh, Platonic thinking had a profound effect on early Christianity. The particular Christian thinker who really became the defining philosopher of the early Christian world was Augustine. So uh, St. Augustine was uh, a monk and abbot and bishop of the city of Hippo in North Africa, uh, in what's now Algeria, in North Africa, in the late 300s and early 400s. And uh, Augustine did not grow up as a Christian. He uh, was a pagan uh, for a while. He also embraced the, uh, the Manichaean religion, which, like Plato, is dualist and sees uh, an opposition between the sort of darker world of matter and the body and the light world of, of spirit or mind. And... Uh, Augustine also was a person who had very little self-control. He was constantly indulging in his uh, sexual appetites and things like this, and he felt uh, guilt and uh, frustration, and he finally converted to Christianity and had a sort of uh, reawakening experience in his conversion to Christianity. Augustine wrote uh, a series of confessions describing this change in his life and his his conversion to Christianity, which have become famous all through the centuries. Uh, he also wrote um, the, the City of God is really his magnum opus, and I'll get to that later. 
But uh, Augustine was a very sophisticated philosopher. He knew Plato and Plato's disciples. Uh, he'd been exposed to a whole range of ancient uh, Greek and Roman and Middle Eastern thought. And he brought this intellectual sophistication then to how he understood Christianity and the Bible. Augustine uh, insisted that the Bible must be understood as having multiple layers of meaning, uh, much of which are metaphorical or allegorical, and that you, you cannot understand the Bible simply crudely, literally. Uh, and this uh, set the tone then for how medieval thinkers for a thousand years afterwards would approach reading the Bible and, and understanding Christian teachings in general. Uh, many of you may be aware of the Scopes Monkey Trial, which took place in Tennessee in the 1920s. Uh, and which has been seen for a long time as a touchstone of the conflict between science and religion. So a teacher in Tennessee was uh, put on trial for teaching the theory of evolution, which was against the law in Tennessee. Uh, evangelicals and fundamentalists uh, in Tennessee saw the theory of evolution as offensive and as conflicting with a plain literal reading of the Bible. Uh, and during that trial, the teacher was defended by the jurist Clarence Darrow. And Clarence Darrow, uh, as a show of rhetorical strength and confidence, put the prosecutor, William Jennings Bryan, on the stand and questioned him, and questioned him about his beliefs. And William Jennings Bryan maintained that he understood the Bible to be literally true as written. And Clarence Darrow said, okay, so these passages in the book of Genesis that describe God as separating the light from the darkness on the first day, and then separating uh, the heavens and the earth on a second day, and there was an evening and a morning, uh, and then a third day, uh, God separates the land from the waters, and there was an evening and a morning. Uh, Darrow asks him, so were these real literal days? And William Jennings Bryan said, yes, of course they were. That's what it says. And then Darrow said, well, then uh, how could there have been a day and an evening and a morning when there wasn't a sun yet? Because God didn't create the sun until the fourth day. And William Jennings Bryan, of course, was flummoxed and had nothing to say in response. And that's been a famous moment uh, ever since. Well, Clarence Darrow took that argument about these days of creation directly from St. Augustine. Uh, that was Augustine's first argument that he put forward for why the Bible cannot be taken as literally true. And Augustine maintained that the days described in uh, the first chapter of Genesis are not real days, they're just sort of moments in the unfolding of time, which may have been uh, instantaneous or may have taken thousands or millions of years. So uh, Augustine had a very uh, nuanced way of approaching the Bible. Uh, he believed that whenever the Bible seemed nonsensical or contradictory, you had to look beyond the literal meaning to a more uh, nuanced metaphorical or allegorical meaning. And he also put a 
uh, moral criterion on how you read the Bible. Uh, if he believed that there was any uh, part of the Bible that seemed to discourage uh, or go against love of fellow man and love of God, then it also could not be taken as literally true. And there had to be some sort of deeper metaphorical or allegorical meaning because the Bible uh, can never possibly encourage uh, hatred or, or violence. So, uh, so Augustine started this, uh, setting up this sort of complicated conceptual apparatus for how to seek multiple levels of meaning uh, in a text like uh, the scriptures. And this, again, would set the stage for all of uh, medieval philosophy and theology and, uh, and textual criticism. As I mentioned, Augustine's real magnum opus was the City of God, uh, which he wrote in the early 400s in the aftermath of the sack of Rome. So you remember uh, in 410, Alaric and his Gothic army sack the city of Rome, and many refugees from Rome actually went to Hippo, and Augustine was in faced with this influx of refugees basically coming to him and saying, how can we still believe in Christianity? Uh, we embraced Christianity, we built churches, we made Rome a Christian city, and yet still these horrible uh, disasters befall us. So how can we still believe in this, in this Christian God? And Augustine began writing City of God as a response to that question. And he basically argued that uh, the that the city of Rome that had been sacked was merely the city of man. It was an earthly city uh, built by people with all their flaws, with all their uh, limitations. It had uh, it had good and bad. It had um, good people and bad people. It had sin in it. It uh, and it was like all human things. It was bound to fall eventually. Uh, the real people should place their real hope, Augustine argued, not in the city of man, which was bound always to decay and fall apart in one way or another, but rather in the city of God, which is a spiritual community, which is uh, eternal, and which is composed of uh, only of believers. Uh, so you can see where this uh, imagining of the city of God uh, is fairly in line with Plato's thinking and the Platonic view of the world, that there's a sort of higher reality that is spiritual, that is accessible only with the mind, uh, and that is eternal as opposed to the always corrupting and decaying uh, world of, of human beings and the flesh and the material world. So the this doctrine, uh, this idea of the city of God, uh, became foundational to how the medieval church would view itself. Uh, the church more or less saw itself as the city of God, uh, the place built on eternal principles, on faith, on true doctrine, uh, that would always stand regardless of what happened in the ordinary temporal world uh, around it. So Augustine is this sort of uh, towering intellectual figure who created a philosophy that was appealing 
at a time of social and political breakdown, right? So when you're in a world when institutions are falling apart, when the, the actual literal fabric of the Roman world is literally disintegrating around you, uh, there's a certain appeal to this belief in an eternal city, a city of God built on uh, knowledge, faith, and, and belief, which will outlast uh, the city of man. And this uh, was uh, the, this became in effect the, the orthodoxy of early medieval intellectual life. Nonetheless, City of God is a tremendous tome. You know, my students who have had to read parts of it uh, will tell you it's a very dense, very complicated, difficult, long book. Uh, and it was, it was uh, reproduced, and it's remarkable that copies of it did survive all the way through the Middle Ages. It shows how, uh, what, what high regard it was held in. But it was not as widely read and as widely known as another book that came about a hundred years later uh, called uh, The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. So uh, The Consolation of Philosophy is a comparatively shorter, uh, more readable, more engaging book, which puts forward in some ways a very similar philosophy, but it's more personal it's autobiographical, like Augustine's Confessions. Uh, and it was written in the early 500s by a, name, a man named Boethius, who was a public official in Rome, in the kingdom of Rome, in the early 500s. So this was after uh, the last emperor, Romulus Augustulus, had been deposed, and you now had a series of Gothic kings uh, ruling in Rome, but they governed a lot like the emperors had before them. Uh, there was still a senate, and there were still consuls, which were uh, the sort of executive uh, elected officials who served uh, in the name of the king. So Boethius rose to this point of, of becoming a consul at the same time that he also was a philosopher who studied uh, music and color and other uh, sort of natural uh, phenomena. Very suddenly, Boethius was arrested and imprisoned on suspicion of plotting against the king. And at least supposedly, while he was in prison, awaiting his eventual execution, he wrote a book called The Consolation of Philosophy, where he describes philosophy appearing to him in the form of a woman, sort of like uh, an, an angel, and cheers him up, basically, saying everything uh, in life like power and wealth uh, that you can see and grasp uh, is fleeting. There is a wheel of fortune that is always turning. Uh, in one moment, you might be at the top, and at the next, you're plunged back to the bottom. Uh, and so you shouldn't put your faith or confidence in those things, but you should take comfort in the things that you do have control over. Uh, your own mind, your own character, and uh, your own virtue. So even if you end up losing everything and dying, which Boethius did, he was executed, you still can uh, see your life as a happy life if you acted well and acted virtuously and you took uh, pleasure from knowledge and thought and reflection. So Boethius becomes the real sort of handbook for life 
in the Middle Ages and continues to be enormously uh, authoritative and widely known all the way through uh, the early modern era. Uh, after Boethius, Christian Neoplatonic philosophers like John the Scot undertake uh, new projects of trying to uh, analyze and categorize the entire world according to uh, Platonic uh, categories and trying to distinguish uh, what role God plays in sort of creating uh, the world of eternal forms and ideas. Uh, but those are extremely metaphysically complicated works, and I'm not going to get into the details. But basically, during the Carolingian era, the era of Charlemagne and afterwards, that sort of uh, Neoplatonic metaphysics has uh, a period of, of flourishing and is, is patronized by, by the church and by Charlemagne's uh, imperial government. After 1000, a new institutional flourishing uh, of learning begins, which goes beyond these sort of Platonic and Augustinian orthodoxies. As I said before, after about 1000, the European population starts to grow significantly. You have a warmer climate, much greater agricultural productivity, uh, growing trade, and growing towns and cities. And under these conditions, when you have more uh, commercial prosperity, more opportunity to, to travel and to gather uh, with other people in larger towns, people interested in scholarship begin to gather around the monasteries and priories attached to large cathedrals where they have a chance of learning from the monks and canons and others uh, and studying the surviving classical texts. Various universities, beginning with Bologna, uh, are founded in the 11th and 12th centuries. There's a sort of movement of university formation, and often when one university is founded by a city or by uh, a king or a queen, uh, they will sort of provoke their social rivals to also found another one. So you have uh, Bologna in northern Italy, and then another university at Padova. You have Salamanca and Valladolid in Spain. Uh, universities at Paris and Toulouse in France, Oxford and Cambridge in England, and universities at Prague in Bohemia and Naples in southern Italy. Uh, all of these open by about the year 1200. The huge growth in popularity of classical studies and the creation of these universities stemmed also from the huge wave of recovery of classical knowledge from the Islamic world, particularly from Islamic Spain, and I'll talk about that more later, but as the Christian states carried out the reconquest through Spain, they were able to capture cities with large, uh, rich libraries of Greek and Latin and Arabic uh, books in Spain, and as workshops were set up to translate these works into Latin that other Europeans would understand, uh, there was a kind of knowledge rush through Europe. And uh, schools and universities uh, grew. They began to teach medicine and uh, astronomy and other forms of philosophy that were now uh, pouring out 
of these uh, of these translation uh, schools in Spain. It became conventional for universities to set up uh, a regular curriculum, which involved uh, several uh, standard courses of learning that were called the trivium, the quadrivium, and then higher uh, advanced studies. So the trivium is means the three ways, and it was the three most basic subjects of learning or arts which dealt with language, and those were logic, rhetoric, and grammar. The medievals were extremely serious about logic, uh, and uh, the philosophy of the schools, or scholastic philosophy as we call it now, was very insistent on learning uh, Aristotle's syllogisms and uh, mastering very sophisticated uh, logic and the terminology of logic. Then the quadrivium, or the four ways, uh, was four applications of mathematics, namely arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. Uh, and uh, medieval philosophers uh, argued that uh, arithmetic was the manipulation of pure number, geometry was number in space, astronomy is number in space and time, and music is number uh, in time, okay, the, the mathematical manipulation of sound, which is, which is always uh, dynamic. Once a scholar had mastered the trivium and the quadrivium, he could then pursue higher studies, uh, which would uh, prepare him to be a professional of some sort. And the main higher studies were medicine, law, and philosophy. Uh, and it was generally agreed uh, in the schools that philosophy was the highest discipline which the most ambitious students should pursue, uh, and that uh, the highest form of philosophy was theology, or the understanding of God. So, uh, there was a great enthusiasm for all of this classical learning uh, coming out of uh, the Islamic world and the recovery and analysis of ancient texts. Uh, but as anyone who reads this, uh, this corpus will surely know, uh, there are a great number of tensions and contradictions. Uh, the ancient philosophers of Greece and Rome didn't all agree. Uh, they often had uh, bitter disputes with one another. Also, the early uh, church teachers, who were also studied in the schools, uh, like Augustine, Eusebius, um, Cyprian, Tertullian, they didn't all agree about things either. There are a lot of tensions and contradictions uh, among them. And most particularly, the uh, sort of crucial tension that arose in the schools was between the accepted uh, orthodox teachings of Plato and Augustine on the one hand, and Aristotle on the other. So Aristotle uh, was a student and disciple of Plato in ancient Athens, yet he had a very different worldview from Plato. He was a, an extremely uh, creative, prolific thinker and researcher, and he had a very different approach uh, from Plato. He was much more empirical. He was interested in using the senses, 
uh, and careful observation of the visible world. He uh, observed and cataloged living creatures, animals, plants, uh, the body, uh, politics, history, and he had a much more optimistic view of human capabilities uh, and faculties. Uh, he uh, believed that human beings could cultivate their virtues or excellences and could achieve what he called eudaimonia, flourishing or well-being, uh, through uh, experience and action in the world. Uh, it's Aristotle who said that human beings are zoon politikon, a political animal, and that uh, the highest, most successful and happiest life for a human being was, was a political life, one engaged in public action, lawmaking, uh, and public debate. So he really celebrated uh, human life and the human mind in a way that Plato took a much dimmer view, uh, that human beings didn't really have access to sort of the higher truths and higher realities other than a tiny minority of philosophers. So uh, there was a lot of disagreement and confusion over what to do with these ideas, particularly Aristotle's ideas, as they were being revived and reintroduced to the Latin West in the 1000s and the 1100s. And you ended up with uh, intensely uh, uh, divided faculties at these universities and intensely clashing schools of thought over what to make of these multivarious ideas and sources. and the process of debate that scholars adopted to try to work out these contradictions and to try to settle on a consensus understanding of the ancient wisdom uh, came to be called uh, scholasticism, right? The philosophy of the schools. And scholasticism is essentially a, a philosophy of disputation, a philosophy of examining disagreements and searching for reconciliation uh, among them. So, uh, so as I said, a lot of this material was coming from the Islamic world, which had preserved a much greater uh, share of ancient knowledge, a lot of which they got when they uh, conquered areas like Palestine and Syria and North Africa, uh, and a lot of which they actually bought or bargained for from the Byzantine Empire. Uh, and most of it came back into Western Europe through Spain. Some also uh, came through other avenues like Sicily. Uh, in the early 1100s, Sicily under King Roger II was a multi-religious kingdom, and King Roger employed various uh, Islamic scholars like the geographer Muhammad al-Idrisi, uh, and this was an avenue by which all sorts of historical and geographical knowledge could come uh, into the Latin West. Aristotle, of course, was the biggest, most authoritative, most influential scholar whose works were rediscovered uh, in this way. And also with Aristotle came the works of various uh, uh, Muslim commentators, who had analyzed and added to Aristotle's corpus. For example, uh, Ibn Rushd, whom the Europeans called Averroes, was the foremost authority and commentator on Aristotle. 
And both Aristotle and Averroes, uh, even though neither one was Christian, both of them came to be regarded with tremendous respect and reverence in the late medieval uh, universities. And Aristotle customarily was simply referred to as the philosopher, and Averroes was called the commentator. So if, you, if you're, you know, looking through Thomas Aquinas and he just starts talking about the philosopher, he means Aristotle. So a sort of cottage industry developed in these universities, particularly the University of Paris, as well as Naples, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, and others, a sort of um, cottage industry arose of debating and writing uh, analyses and attempts to reconcile the different views that you see in different important uh, ancient philosophers. And uh, St. Anselm, who I mentioned before, was the first to undertake this, uh, this project in the early 1100s, uh, and he is sometimes seen as the founder of scholasticism, but he really was quickly overshadowed by a new uh, superstar who came shortly afterward named Peter Abelard. So Abelard was a French uh, minor nobleman who was supposed to go into knighthood. Uh, that would have been the normal course for someone of his birth. But he decided that he was an intellectual genius, and instead he traveled around France and, and other parts of Europe, basically going to different schools and universities and uh, barging in and challenging and debating the views that were being taught, uh, including by his own teachers uh, at Paris. He became a sort of a showman and superstar of debate. He could uh, run intellectual circles around most of his rivals. However, for us today, he's famous more because of his personal life. He joined a priory in Paris and became a tutor to a young, uh, sort of equally brilliant uh, woman named Eloise. And we don't know what Eloise's surname was, we don't know what her exact birth was, but she was the niece of another canon at the University of Paris. Uh, and she was known in Paris as a sort of brilliant linguist. She had mastered Hebrew, Greek, and Latin already at a young age, and that was very exceptional at a time when most scholars didn't even know Greek and hardly anybody in Western Europe knew Hebrew. Uh, she stood out as a, as a wunderkind. Abelard was hired to be her tutor. Uh, he found her you know, brilliant and fascinating, and they had an illicit love affair, although Eloise did not want to get married or have children. She saw that as uh, an irritating uh, distraction from her intellectual life. Uh, but they did have a brief uh, affair of some sort. Uh, when Eloise's family found out that her tutor had, had crossed this boundary, they attacked him and castrated him. He was forced to join a monastery, and Eloise uh, became a nun and eventually an abbess, but they continued their correspondence and their intellectual friendship. So uh, they are still famous today because of their love affair and because of their letters. Uh, so this is what makes uh, Abelard kind of a legendary figure today, but he, there is no doubt that he was a searingly brilliant 
and innovative mind. And possibly his, his most important work, apart from his correspondence with Eloise, his most important work was a book that he compiled called Sick et Non, which simply means yes and no. And what Abelard did in Sick et Non is he put together a long list of important and difficult philosophical questions, particularly questions about how to understand the Christian religion in light of logic and philosophy. And for each of these questions, he cited different views that different teachers in the past, like Augustine or or Plato had taken and uh, on, on each side of the question, okay? And then simply left them there and did not provide a correct answer. So what Siketnan did is it summed up the tremendous array of open, ambiguous questions that still had to be addressed without putting forward definite right answers. Uh, and it helped to kind of blow open the scholastic conversation. The first five questions in Sik et Non were, one, must human faith be completed by reason or not? Two, does faith deal only with unseen things or not? Three, is there any knowledge of things unseen or not? So he's questioning, uh, the ability to discuss or know anything about spiritual matters. Four, may one believe only in God alone or not? And five, is God a single unitary being or not? So these are the sort of major questions that you might think Christian dogma had been very settled on by this time. But in fact, they were very open uh, to question. Later on, he asks uh, about whether God is all-powerful. Uh, is God the cause and initiator of evil or not? Can God do anything and everything or not? Is it possible to resist God or not? Uh, so he's asking these uh, troubling questions, probing at the notions that God is all-powerful and that God is benevolent, when, as anyone could see then as now, that it's, it doesn't make sense logically that God could be all good, all powerful, and that there could be evil uh, and suffering. So these are the sort of hard questions that Abelard spurred on and that were taken up and grappled with by later philosophers. So Abelard was sort of the early superstar of scholasticism, and later in the 13th century, the sort of uh, crowning, or what was seen at, at the time, as the crowning achievement of scholasticism was the Summa Theologiae put, uh, written by Thomas Aquinas. So Aquinas was, all, again, a young minor nobleman. This time he was from Sicily. He went very early on in his life and became a teacher at the University of Paris. And Aquinas basically made it his task to put together a grand system of thought that would reconcile Augustine with Aristotle. Right. So on the one hand, you have Augustine, his belief in the fallenness and sinfulness of human nature. Augustine was a firm believer in original sin, the idea that people uh, cannot avoid being sinful, and a believer that the city of man was always doomed to fail. And then on the other hand, you have Aristotle and his belief in 
the excellence of human beings, the ability to cultivate character, and to achieve a uh, flourishing and happy life through your own capabilities. So Aquinas sought to somehow create uh, a unified system that could embrace both of these ideas. And uh, Aquinas, uh, the sort of central point that he made was that grace does not cancel nature, grace completes nature. So to translate that a little bit, God's salvation that he offers to human beings does not uh, cancel out a sort of sinful, essentially fallen, broken humanity in the way that Augustine would have it, but rather it completes it. God's grace is a sort of uh, crowning element that completes human nature and allows it to achieve, to achieve excellence that it otherwise could not. And in this way, Aquinas believed that human teachings about sin and salvation uh, could be harmonized with Aristotle's uh, belief in, in the goodness and the great potential of human beings. Aristotle also believed in a purpose-driven world, a teleological world, and this was taken up by, by scholastics as well and became a sort of defining idea of the high and late Middle Ages. So uh, Aristotle believed that everything in the universe had a telos, a special purpose that it was to fulfill. Plants are, are meant to grow and bear fruit. Uh, animals are meant to, to multiply. Uh, stars are fixed in the sky. Planets move in the sky. Everything fulfills its role. And human beings are meant to be thinking, reasoning, acting beings. That is their telos. And uh, medieval philosophers like Aquinas and his contemporaries put together a sort of grand picture of the universe, which they summed up with the great chain of being. The idea that everything in the world fits into uh, a grand picture from the heavenly beings, uh, uh, the stars, the planets, uh, God, down to uh, human beings, then the other animals, the plants, and finally uh, the earth. And everything uh, was meant to settle into its correct role. And that's why, say, if you take a rock and drop it in a pond, it sinks to the bottom because rocks and the earth are, are the basest, lowest beings, and so they will sink down to their proper place. Uh, uh, the great chain of being was a sort of grand unifying idea that integrated all kinds of complicated metaphysics drawn from the classics and from the Bible and from traditional Christian teachings. But it was very complicated, right? It, it relied on the belief in all sorts of different substances, uh, acting and interacting in complicated ways. Uh, it tried to combine um, this sort of Aristotelian metaphysics with also belief in God, with, a, with creation, and with uh, an eventual end of the world. And there arose within scholasticism uh, a school of thought that was much more skeptical of this complicated metaphysics and that resisted this huge importation of, of metaphysical ideas and terms from Aristotle and that uh, tried to simplify 
uh, beliefs and simplify the process of reasoning and debate in the schools. Uh, and the main, this main school of thought was called nominalism, right? So when people took up a word from, say, from Aristotle, like, uh, uh, or from Plato, the forms, right? Some people were what we call uh, realists. They believed that all these metaphysical terms referred to some real thing that truly existed, whether you used the word for it or not. And others were nominalist. They believed that these words were simply names. They were simply tools of communication that didn't necessarily apply to any real thing in the world. Uh, and the debate was a lot more complicated than that. Uh, it dealt with the question of universals. Uh, it was e extremely complicated and abstruse. I won't get into the details. But suffice it to say, there were nominalists who were much more skeptical about the real, eternal uh, existence of these philosophical categories. And uh, the foremost of them eventually was William of Ockham, who came to the fore in the 1300s, and Ockham uh, invented the adage we now call Occam's razor. The way he stated it was, quote, it is vain to do with many what can be done with few. Uh, today we tend to phrase it as uh, the simplest explanation is most likely to be the true explanation, or even the simplest explanation is the true explanation. Uh, and basically what, what William of Ockham was saying is, don't posit any more abstract concepts than you absolutely need to in order to account for a phenomenon, right? So you can see where this was a significant challenge to uh, the sort of grand unified scholastic theory of the world. If you drop a, a stone into a pond, a traditional scholastic might say, well, it's going to fall because that's its place in the great chain of being, that is its telos. William of Ockham might say, well, it's heavier, right? If that's the only concept you need in order to explain the phenomenon, don't drag in uh, anything else. So in the 1300s uh, and in the, the later Middle Ages, there was something of a philosophical war in the schools between uh, nominalists, particularly the Occamites, and realists and other schools of thought who put more stock into this very uh, complicated, multi-layered metaphysical system. So that more or less sums up the, uh, the development of scholastic philosophy up through uh, the 1300s in a very, very skeletal way. You'll probably notice that I've been talking almost exclusively about men. Um, Eloise is the only uh, woman that I've mentioned thus far, unless I'm forgetting someone. However, the philosophical schools were not necessarily closed to women. Uh, there is evidence that sometimes women did attend and study, as women did attend and study at Plato's Academy in Athens. There also were many learned uh, church women, and in the later Middle Ages there also were some learned women who worked in royal or civic uh, governments as scribes and diplomats. Uh, Hildegard von Bingen, was an abbess in Germany in the 12th century. She was uh, a student of, of medicine, botany, uh, a very prolific author, a playwright, a poet, a visionary. 
and she was widely uh, regarded as, as a great intellectual authority, although she wrote almost entirely uh, in, her, in her convent and never was part of any sort of university faculty. Uh, I already talked about uh, Eloise and her preference for uh, an intellectual life rather than marriage and child-rearing, uh, and not surprisingly, she also ended up in a convent. Uh, by contrast, uh, Christine de Pizan was a, uh, a Provençal, uh, learned intellectual woman who worked for uh, civil governments as a sort of administrator and diplomat. Uh, she wrote uh, the Book of the City of Women about uh, the history of intellectual and accomplished women and argued for women's education in the 1400s. She also was one of the first European scholars to write systematically about gunpowder and uh, how gunpowder could be used strategically. Uh, aside from these women like Hildegard and Christine de Pizan, there also were more uh, minor women about whom we know much less, but who were very important to the uh, academic and intellectual world uh, of Europe. A lot of the uh, classical and religious texts were translated into vernacular languages by non-translators. Uh, there also were uh, literate women who wrote about uh, their lives, uh, about history and geography. Uh, for example, Marjorie Kemp, the professional pilgrim, who I mentioned in an earlier lecture, was remarkable as a very widely read uh, female author in, in the late Middle Ages. So in this way, the, the intellectual world that flourished from the 11th through the 14th centuries was uh, rich, it was complex, it was uh, dynamic, but nonetheless it was fairly aloof and isolated for most of the rest of society, right? Only a small minority of people were even literate, and uh, outside the world of the schools and universities, there was an entire additional world of technical and artisanal knowledge, which uh, carried on a kind of life of, of its own and rarely ever appeared in written documents. But we know some about it because of the things that they created, right? The buildings, the weapons, the textiles, the artworks. And this was a whole other kind of sphere of knowledge in the medieval world that had very little contact, only very occasional contact with the academic world. If we go back to the early Middle Ages, there was a severe decline in great building projects, largely because there was almost no demand for them, okay? Uh, with the breakdown of urban life and large cities, there was hardly anyone who had the need and the resources to build large buildings. And even if they did want to use large buildings as fortresses or houses of worship, they would simply take over an, ex an existing ancient building, right? Think of the Pantheon in Rome, which became a church. It was rededicated as a church. The structures were already there. And so new construction happened very little in the earliest years of the Dark Age, in the 6th, 7th, even 8th centuries. When new buildings were built, they tended to be smaller, and they often were built of spolia, 
of uh, materials taken from leftover ancient buildings. So you'll see a lot of ancient Roman columns, uh, tile work, things like this that were simply nabbed from Roman ruins and reused. Other new buildings like small fortresses tended to be made in wood. Things like Mott and Bailey fortresses in France and England were usually built out of wood, and we don't have a lot uh, of those extant, and we don't know a lot about them. There was a, a wave of new building in stone again in the Carolingian era, uh, in the 8th and 9th centuries. And I've mentioned before buildings like Charlemagne's royal chapel at Aachen uh, was built in a, uh, a style imitating the ancient and classical monuments, but also adding new Christian and Germanic uh, elements. Later in the High Middle Ages, especially in the 11th century, there was another wave of, of building, and the first sort of medieval architectural, distinctively medieval architectural style was the Romanesque style, which was popular especially in the 11th century all over the Latin West. Uh, you can see uh, new monumental buildings like the Tower of London uh, and the Pont Saint-Benizet in Avignon, the, the, the grand bridge over the Rhone at Avignon, which used uh, classical building styles again, which revived things like domes, vaulted arches, uh, arcades, uh, and uh, the style is called Romanesque, naturally enough, because it was a sort of reuse, readaptation of Roman building uh, techniques. This uh, Romanesque style gradually evolved into, into Gothic in the 12th and 13th centuries, as I've mentioned before. So the crucial element of ancient and classical building that was lost with the dissolution of the Roman Empire was vaulting, right? The, the mathematical and geometric uh, knowledge to create self-supporting large arches, vaults, and domes. And it seems that was lost for a time, but when there was a demand for large buildings, it could be recovered. Uh, masons, stonemasons were able to deduce how those sorts of structures were created, and they were able to reproduce it. And they did so, uh, like most technicians, they did so by experimentation, imitation, and learned skills, not through written documents. The great cathedrals of the High Middle Ages, which you can still see at Notre Dame or Chartres or Canterbury or Cologne, they were not built with any written plan. You're never going to find any uh, book or, or schematic drawing anywhere that shows you the, the plan laid out for one of these cathedrals. Rather, a team of builders would come to a site and they would begin the building using certain mathematical patterns, and they would create templates, sort of wood blocks that showed the size and shape of stones that they were using to create these mathematical proportions. Once they had built a portion of the building, they would leave the templates, they would go home, and sometime later, maybe 10, maybe 50 years later, other builders would come. They would find those templates, and they would continue building. But they would, they would improvise as they went, simply using those templates, right? So it was learned skill and practice that allowed people to build these very elaborate, mathematically sophisticated buildings 
and it was done without written plans or schematics. The same sort of skill was used in all kinds of other crafts and pursuits in the high and late Middle Ages. I've mentioned before that the labor-saving inventions that harnessed natural power where human power was scarce. There was a tremendous proliferation in the use of water mills, and they were put to all sorts of new uses that hadn't been known in antiquity. Uh, In the 11th, 12th centuries, Europeans began to make tanning mills for making leather, mining water mills, which would use water power to bring minerals up out of mines, ore crushing mills, paper mills, saw mills, mills that drove bellows and blast furnaces. Also, the first tidal mills uh, were invented in Ireland, which harnessed uh, the the power of the tides to do all sorts of work. So all kinds of, of building, refining, processing work that previously had to be done by hand in the ancient world was now being done with water power and also with wind power. The first vertical windmills with uh, vertical turning sails were invented by the 1180s uh, in England. Also human-powered treadmills where uh, a mill would be driven by human inside it, sort of like a hamster turning a hamster wheel. These treadmills were extremely useful because they were mobile and they could be put at different sites for building, for temporary building sites and for warfare. Uh, So in all of these ways, there was a tremendous inventiveness in the creation of new, uh, new machines for harnessing different power sources for different uses. And the French historian Jean Gampel wrote the famous book, uh, The Medieval Machine, in the 1970s, where he kind of examines how all these different sorts of technicians and inventors created all of these, uh, these, these different sorts of machines. And Gompel actually argued that developing nations, newly independent nations in the Third World, actually should use these sorts of medieval machines to develop their, their productivity and raise their standard of living. And they have the advantage that they can be easily created and maintained and used locally, using local materials like wood, uh, a few animals, rather than requiring expensive machinery and materials and personnel from outside the country. So if places want to really establish themselves as economically independent, they should use this sort of medieval technology. There was also great advance and experimentation in optics, The English friar, uh, Roger Bacon, at Oxford, experimented very uh, keenly in the manipulation of light and refraction of light through different substances, and he invented the first magnifying glass at Oxford in 1250. A little later, the first eyeglasses were invented in Italy in the later 1200s. There were huge advances in navigation, Compasses, uh, which point to uh, magnetic north, were first invented in China, and then either they were somehow brought from China into Europe, or they were invented separately in Europe by about 1200, since at, at that time we have accounts of sailors crossing back and forth over the English Channel and using compasses around 1200. Uh, In the 1400s, the Portuguese invented caravels, which were hugely important for 
long-distance exploration. So the known existing ships in earlier years had been either square-sailed ships, which are good for catching a lot of wind and getting a lot of power, but which are very hard to control, and lateen-sail ships, which had smaller triangular sails that could be easily manipulated to control the uh, direction of the vessel, but didn't get a lot of power. Uh, And in 1451, Portuguese sailors created caravels which combined uh, square sails with triangular sails and could actually go long distances, sometimes quite quickly, but were very controllable, including in storms or complicated currents. And it was this invention of caravels that for the first time allowed long-distance exploration, particularly of the Atlantic and Africa. Uh, Medieval craftsmen were extremely skilled in glassworking. This was uh, a time when very sophisticated stained glass using all sorts of minerals and chemicals was developed. Uh, There was highly sophisticated woodworking and metalworking. For example, the the gold work in Nuremberg was probably uh, the best uh, in the world. And these various sorts of crafts that involved complicated materials and chemical reactions, like glazing and metalwork, were seen as falling under the umbrella of alchemy. And alchemy, many regarded alchemy as truly the highest craft. It led to all sorts of great insights in in glass, ceramics, also medicine. And alchemy, we think of today as sort of a a bogus superstition. Many people at the time did as well. Uh, But uh, at root, alchemy simply meant uh, the manipulation of natural substances and particularly the manipulation of transmutation, right? Ways to change one substance into another. And this was not seen at the time as necessarily supernatural. It could be an entirely natural process. You know, how does earth turn into a plant? How does water crystallize into ice? So these processes of transmutation were seen as very important and promising, and the ultimate hope was to create a philosopher's stone, create some sort of substance that could change base materials into gold. Uh, No philosopher's stone was ever found by any alchemist, not surprisingly. Uh, It takes a nuclear reaction to turn anything into gold. But but it did, their experimentation did lead to all kinds of new techniques in in medicine, glasswork, woodwork, ceramics, uh, and so forth. So there was this entire complicated body of what you might call sort of folk technical knowledge, right? Artisanal technical knowledge being passed along and developed by mostly illiterate commoners. Sometimes this sort of technical knowledge did feed into theorization by literate philosophers and churchmen. Uh, For example, uh, Jean Buridan was uh, a scholastic philosopher in France in the 1300s, and he studied uh, the motion of objects sort of movement, uh, flight, and he developed the idea of impetus. So if you had talked to Aristotle, if you look at Aristotle's comments about motion, he theorized that when you throw an object like a, like a, a stone through the air, after you let it go, it continues to fly through the air, 
And it does so because as it moves, it leaves a sort of vacuum of empty space behind it. Air then rushes in to fill that vacuum, and as it does so, it pushes the rock forward, hence it keeps moving. So this was Aristotle's answer to the question of why is it that when you let go of an object, it keeps moving? Jean Buridan, not surprisingly, found this unconvincing. And he in instead posited the idea that when you throw an object, as you press it and accelerate it forward, you put a sort of quality into the object, which he called impetus. And the impetus kept the thing in motion until gradually the impetus was worn out and bled out of the object by friction, uh, including friction against the air, air drag. Uh, so this was a way of turning the question around. And Buridan's idea of impetus laid the foundation later for Galileo and particularly Newton and the idea of uh, the first law of motion and kinetic energy and momentum and kinetic energy, as we call them uh, now. So there were some learned scholastics who dealt with some of these sort of practical and technical problems uh, and came up with new ideas that laid the foundation for what we today think of as physics. But these were more the exception that proved the rule. In general, we have two different streams of thought, uh, the, the, the artisanal body of knowledge and the scholastic academic uh, body of knowledge, which are quite different. So this more or less sums up these sort of two traditions of knowledge as they developed through the Middle Ages and through the 1300s. After 1400, a new school of thought begins to emerge, which we now uh, think of as Renaissance humanism, right? And Renaissance humanism began among Florentine scholars who, who saw Western Christendom in their own time as sort of superstitious, obscurantist, overly tradition-bound, and who wanted to look back to the sort of dynamic heroism of the ancient world, particularly the Romans. Humanist scholars were very interested in recovering and learning the original style of Latin used by the ancient Romans. And they found medieval Latin, as it was used in the ecclesiastical schools, to be too jargon-heavy, obscure, difficult to understand, and they wanted to go back to the sort of fluent and poetic style of the ancient Romans. And these humanist scholars tended to uh, reject and to deride the sort of obsession with logic and metaphysics and the obsession with obscure, arcane philosophical questions that the scholastics spent so many volumes uh, discussing. Uh, one of these humanist scholars, uh, Lorenzo Valla of Florence, wrote a sort of mock encomium to Thomas Aquinas in 1457. And he presented this, uh, this kind of mock speech to the Dominicans, the order that Thomas Aquinas had belonged to, in 1457. And he rejected the way that scholastics would sneak in all kinds of metaphysical terms like being, entity, quiddity, individuality, reality, and essence. Uh, he dismissed these as metaphysical obscurities, 
and he rejected the sense of certainty that scholastics placed in logic and metaphysics and made the exception saying that uh, only physicians in their experiments on the body can achieve real certainty. Uh, This sort of overwrought logic and epistemological jargon did not provide uh, certainty. Many Renaissance scholars also loved to mock the sort of excessive erudition, the obsession with tradition, the obsession with encyclopedic knowledge of earlier authorities. Uh, And Rabelais, the French Renaissance humanist, in his sort of satirical novel Gargantua, describes the the way Gargantua was was given a traditional education. And he says, uh, Accordingly, they had him instructed by a great doctor, a sophist, Mr. Tubal Holofernes by name, who taught him his alphabet so well he could say it backwards and by heart, taught him to write all his Greek letters by hand, and he carried around with him ordinarily a big writing desk weighing more than 700,000 pounds. Uh, so he's sort of sending up the, the kind of showy erudition and obsession with, with detail uh, of the scholastics. And he goes on to say, Then they read him the commentaries of Windjammer, Stupin Fetchit, Too Many, Gwellahall, John Calf, Bad Penny, Pussy Bumper, and lots of others. Uh, so Rabelais is sort of uh, humorously dismissing these long genealogies of scholars that scholastic academics would learn in this uh, long course of liberal arts education. Uh, and Rabelais, like many Renaissance thinkers uh, is calling for an education oriented more towards action, right? Educated in classical history, uh, poetry, drama, which will teach people not to uh, think in tiny, fine distinctions, but rather to act in heroic ways, right? Uh, Renaissance thinkers focused on individual achievement and greatness. They celebrated figures like uh, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. They valued action over academic knowledge. And in all of these ways, the Renaissance really was significantly anti-intellectual, right? Renaissance humanism wanted to sort of sweep out what they saw as the dust and the, the excessive erudition of medieval scholars, okay? They did not make fun of medieval scholastics for being ignorant, but for being too knowledgeable. However, at the same time, uh, the the Renaissance scholars did make a great contribution in recovering and analyzing language as it changes over time, determining uh, the social historical contexts in which texts were written through uh, philology, through contemporary references, and recovering authentic ancient texts while debunking later uh, forgeries by, by uh, determining their, their real context. Uh, famously, Lorenzo Valla examined an important document called the Donation of Constantine, which was purported to be uh, a deed in which the Emperor Constantine handed over ownership of the city of Rome to the Pope in the 4th century when Constantine 
was emperor. Well, Valla uh, examined the words and phrases used in this document, the references to people and places, and he determined that it was written no earlier than the 8th century, and hence was a forgery. And this is the sort of important work that many Renaissance scholars did, is they looked through the long accretions of documents that had been built up over the centuries through the Middle Ages, and were able to analyze uh, their language, their references, and authenticate them or debunk them, right? And this is the same sort of work that other religious scholars would take up in examining uh, the Bible, for instance. The Renaissance scholars also had an intense interest in mysticism and magic, right? So, uh, as I've said before, the interest in alchemy, which was seen as a, a learned uh, craft or learned art in the Middle Ages uh, became even more popular and inspired even more enthusiasm in the 14 and 1500s. Uh, so that's just uh, a little bit about the Renaissance to give you some perspective about how the Renaissance viewed their predecessors and how that has shaped the way we, down to today, think of the Middle Ages. Finally, I'll just briefly comment that uh, some scholars today look at the so-called scientific revolution, right? The explosion in experimentation, uh, systematic uh, cataloging of natural phenomena from about, uh, you know, Galileo or even earlier up through Newton. And they, uh, some today theorize that the scientific revolution came about because these two separate spheres of knowledge that I've been talking about, the scholarly world of the universities and the technical and artisanal world of artisans, finally came together. So, for example, uh, uh, the historian Pamela Smith argues that uh, the scientific revolution began when certain learned, literate scholars like Francis Bacon began to look carefully at the techniques and forms of knowledge of artisans. And they began to take more seriously the way that artisans experimented systematically with different materials and built up unwritten knowledge, embodied or practical knowledge of how to manipulate nature. And that is what then uh, allowed that sort of uh, leap forward in scientific knowledge, whereas in the Middle Ages, that uh, embodied knowledge had largely remained separate from the intensely text-based knowledge of the literate scholars. So I hope that this quick uh, journey through the world of, of, of knowledge, of loss and discovery, of invention, debate, problem solving, through the Middle Ages, shows that what we have is a very complicated picture where it, it's, it's simply not right to look back and say, this was an ignorant era. It certainly was an era in which most people were illiterate and had little access to learned circles. It also was an era in which a great deal of, of written knowledge that we certainly wish we still had today uh, was lost. But it was lost not so much for social and political reasons, but more so for simple technical and material reasons. 
that there were not the material means or the availability of labor that was necessary to keep the great uh, storehouse of knowledge intact. For this reason, I, I hope it's clear how ironic it is that we today might call the Middle Ages the Dark Age. In the early Middle Ages, a lot of knowledge was lost, but it was not because there was some great campaign or some central decision to suppress knowledge. And in fact, if we compare this time to today, we really should be very careful and self-critical. The uh, amount of knowledge and the quality and depth of knowledge that a person should have in order to be considered an educated individual in today's society is rapidly diminishing. Okay, As others have pointed out, a hundred years ago, you had to know Latin and Greek if you even wanted to get into an institution of higher learning like Harvard or Yale. Today, you can graduate from Harvard or Yale or even have an advanced degree from one of these prestigious institutions and not, not only not know Latin or Greek, but in some instances not even know any foreign language. The depth of learning that one is supposed to have in the classics is practically nil. The humanities and arts are rapidly being uh, written out of the curriculum, if there's a curriculum at all. Today, we tend to refer to the sort of inherited body of authoritative uh, books and knowledge from the past as the canon. That's a modern term. It wasn't used in the Middle Ages. But we today refer to that as, as the canon. And there are many who argue that the canon uh, isn't relevant anymore. It's not necessary to know uh, ancient Greek and Latin philosophers for the, the dilemmas of today. And that's a perfectly valid argument. And yet, even as that canon is challenged, there doesn't seem to be any other canon taking its place. Rather, in most instances, the whole idea of a canon is being jettisoned altogether. And no other sort of central touchstone of knowledge uh, for learned people seems to be filling that vacuum. I went to a fairly prestigious uh, university, which doesn't have any core curriculum at all. And that was one of its most popular aspects, was that lack of a core curriculum. But the implication of that is that there is no particular fact or skill that you can be sure that a person will have if they graduate from that university. And in fact, if you talk to scholars today, across the board, whether humanities, foreign languages, sciences, mathematics, none of them will tell you that they are impressed or happy with the level of knowledge that their new students are coming in with. And for, in all of these ways, I think we have to truly entertain the idea that we actually are living in a new dark age or are entering a new dark age today. The historian of the early Middle Ages, Paul Friedman, when he taught a course at Yale about the early Middle Ages, he spoke a bit about this notion of the Dark Age, and he referred to an incident in World War II where a British officer went undercover in rural Crete during uh, World War II, and he was able to capture a German general. And once he had captured him, he had to then escort him through 
the sort of wilderness of Crete to a British ship where he could be held as prisoner. And while they were traveling through the wilderness and trying to sort of pass the time, the German general began reciting a line in Latin uh, from the Latin poet Horace on sort of the, the woods of, of Greece. And the British officer picked this up and continued that poem on in Latin, and they went on to have a sort of conversation back and forth, reciting this, this poem by Horace. Uh, that was something they could do, because as two educated persons in that civilization, they uh, had access to that common body of knowledge. Well, naturally, that world has rapidly ended within the last 60 or so years. And there is no common body of knowledge coming in to replace it. Not historical, not political, not scientific. And ironically, we don't have any technical or technological reason for that to happen. We certainly have the technology to store all of this knowledge and to learn it if we want to, but we aren't doing it. And instead, what remains of education is more and more focused just on skills that are supposedly preparatory for making money after completing one's education. Certainly that's a perfectly worthwhile goal to be prepared to make a living after you complete your education, and yet it's also an abandonment of the very idea of a common fund of knowledge, which was broadly uh, accepted as necessary for a so-called enlightened or wise society from right from the high middle ages through to the 20th century so again i i just believe that we should be very cautious and look at ourselves first before we uh project things we disapprove of onto the medieval world in short those who live in glass houses should not throw stones So thanks again uh, for listening. Uh, please take a look at my Patreon page under Historian Explaining if you can contribute anything. There will be more lectures. And uh, if you have topics or questions, please tell me at historiansplaining at gmail.com or on SoundCloud. Thanks. Can you hear a stem-sick soul? I got some mental sound, I got you got to dang until you know it away.